This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss, and my guest today is Dr. Neil Bernard, founder and president of the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, or PCRM. But beyond that, Dr. Bernard is aware of many hats. For instance, as president of PCRM, Dr. Bernard leads programs advocating for preventative medicine, good nutrition, and higher ethical standards in research. He's an adjunct associate professor of medicine at the George Washington University School of Medicine. In 2015, he was named a fellow of the American College of Cardiology. In 2016, he launched the Bernard Medical Center in Washington, D.C., whose mission is making nutrition a standard element of all forms of medicine medical care. Dr. Bernard will likely be drawing on this expertise and experience when he delivers a webinar on Halloween Day entitled Your Body in Balance, the new science of food, hormones, and health, and how foods can help us fight COVID-19. He's scheduled to give this presentation at noon on October 31st, part of a trio of webinars offered over Halloween weekend through a collaboration between Tampa Bay Veg Fest, Central Florida Veg Fest, and Florida Voices for Animals. The other two webinars are Fact-Checking Animal Rights Media by Christopher Sebastian, October 30th at 6 p.m., and Why the Sexual Politics of Meat Matters in 2020 by Carol Adams, November 1st at noon. We'll hear about the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine in 2020. Dr. Bernard founded it 35 years ago and asked him for a sneak preview of his webinar and discuss a number of other topics when I speak with Dr. Neil Bernard in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. A programming note, I won't be here next Wednesday, November 4th, not coincidentally the day after election day but the good news is that the fabulous bev capshaw will host the show in my absence meanwhile later in today's show i'll speak with jackie jacola executive director of the cat depot in sarasota a shelter specializing in you guessed it cats thought the timing was fortuitous and that tomorrow is national cat day so we'll hear about the cat depot and about some cats available for adoption later in this program right now though in a zoom conversation recorded monday this is dr neil bernard on talking animals on wmnf Thanks for joining us again on the show, Dr. Bernard. Thank you. Great to be with you today. So since I said Dr. Bernard, which of course you are, one thing I was wondering about that I don't think we talked about before was when did you know that you wanted to be a doctor? Uh, I had a bit of an unusual trajectory. Um, I was not the slightest bit interested in medicine as a youngster. My my father was a doctor. He started out uh, in the cattle business as a young man. Uh, the whole family raised cattle and his father and his grandfather father and his great friend, brother and so forth. And he didn't like the cattle business. So he left it and went to medical school and became the diabetes expert for Fargo, North Dakota. And, and I had no interest in following in his footsteps. Um, diabetes was something that people never seemed to get better from. And he never once came in the front door saying he'd cured anybody. And so um, it just wasn't something I wanted to do. But then when I was in college, I was interested in psychology and I was interested in how the mind worked. So I wanted to to become a psychiatrist and understand just more about how the brain worked. But from there, I 
ended up in doing research studies and really getting quite excited about diabetes where we started because we found out that we could reverse it. Yeah, well, that's in no small measure, I guess, kind of why I asked, because I did know that your dad was a doctor who specialized in treating people with diabetes. And really, that's, I think, reasonably speaking now, could be called an area that's one of your specialties as well. So I guess one thing I'd like to ask you to address how the medical perspective on treating diabetes has changed just within one generation, maybe, I guess, arguably within one family for that matter. Interesting way of putting it, yeah. Well, diabetes had been thought of as something that you couldn't cure, that it didn't go away. It was a one-way street, and my father, I think, viewed his job as trying to help people who had diabetes to slow the disease process so that if they had a heart attack, it would occur later on. If they needed dialysis because their kidneys were shot, that you would just try to put that off as long as possible. And uh, the whole idea was to try to slow down the complications. But what we discovered is that if you configure the diet in the right way, you can improve diabetes dramatically. You can reduce medicines. You can sometimes get off them completely. You can sometimes make this disease just go away. And what my father was not aware of, what what, what none of the doctors of his generation were aware of, is the connection between the food you eat and the disease process. And we now have have learned a lot about that that we can put to work. But again, that is a relatively short time for something that seems to me at least quite significant. And again, it's handy to just say, well, it is really one generation because your dad, that was kind of an area of great interest and especially for him. And that's become an area of yours. And just the whole way of looking at it in terms of diet in particular uh, has really shifted significantly. Yeah, and and maybe I should explain kind of what's, what's happened. Um, The old idea was diabetes means you've got too much sugar in your blood. And if it's type 2 diabetes, um, the the problem is that the cells of the body that run on sugar, like your muscles, that sugar is their fuel, your liver, sugar is its fuel. Um, They can't get the sugar out of the blood and into the cell because insulin, which is a hormone, it's made in your pancreas, but it's really the key that arrives through the blood from the pancreas to the surface of the cell. It's supposed to open up the cell and let the glucose inside, but for some reason you're insulin resistant. That insulin key is not working on the cell. And that's the beginning of type 2 diabetes. But what we've learned is the cause of this. You can look in the cells with a with a technique that didn't used to exist. It's called MR spectroscopy. It's very expensive. <laughs> you take a, uh, a, a very high-tech scanner and the patient goes in it. It's, it's like an MRI. If you read an MRI of a twisted ankle or something, like that. Oh, wow. similar, similar yeah. thing, except now you're not looking at a twisted ankle. What you're looking at is inside the muscle and liver cells and you see something that's abnormal. And what is abnormal is a buildup of fat. In other words, you ate a piece of fried chicken mm-hmm. or some salmon, something fatty. And the fat got through your bloodstream into the cells and it makes insulin not work. So we've discovered that if you want to get insulin to get, if you want to have <clears throat> diabetes to get worse, eat a lot of fat because the fat gets in the cells and insulin can't function. And so this is not the idea that sugar causes diabetes. That's the symptom of diabetes is that blood sugar builds up. Mm. The cause of it is the fat that builds up inside the cell. So we've been using diets that don't have any animal fat at all. It's a vegan diet and you keep the vegetable oils really very low and the fat effectively dissipates from the cell. The insulin resistance improves uh, the person doesn't need medicine anymore. They need a lot less in many cases. And sometimes the disease just flat out goes away. And, and the previous generation of doctors did not, they had no understanding that that was the cause. So they couldn't, they couldn't hope to make the disease go away. Well, I suppose with what was available at the time, it'd be hard to just be that 
optimistic that, hey, whatever else we're trying here, what if we just said change your diet to this, this, and this, and then the diabetes would reverse or even disappear? I mean, if you just go back to what was going on then and, and the perspective and training they had, uh, it's just hard to imagine anybody even taking that kind of leap of faith until they could start to see it and document it the way your your generation has. Yes, uh, th- that that's right. However... They could, I think there were reasons why they could have tried it. They, they didn't have MR spectroscopy. They didn't have what we have now. But, but they did have, they, they, first of all, they knew that the diets they were using were not working. The, the diets that, that were typically prescribed in clinics in America and Europe, and it was these simple things. Oh, your blood sugar is too high, so don't have sugar. Um, and don't eat too much in the way of carbohydrates because that releases sugar in the blood. And, yeah. um, but make sure you have enough carbohydrate because you're now injecting insulin. And if you, if you don't have enough carbohydrate, you'll run low blood sugar. So the, the whole idea was to, to um, have the right amount of carbohydrate, but not too much, and, and then cut calories so the patient would lose weight. However, the inkling they could have, could have grasped, and, and maybe some people did, is if you looked at a country like Japan, back in the 19, say, 1960s, 1970s. Diabetes was rare and very uncommon. I mean, even in older people, um, where you tend to see diabetes starting up, they just didn't have much of it. Um, And they weren't limiting carbohydrate. They ate a very high rice diet, lots of starchy vegetables, root vegetables, and so forth. Mm -hmm. Um, And the diabetes, what brought diabetes to Japan was McDonald's um, and other fast food chains and restaurants and, and Western business lunches that were meaty and cheesy and had ice cream. And these were not Japanese traditions at all, but almost overnight, J- Japan's diet became a meaty Western fast food diet, particularly for men at first and then women afterward, because uh, men were kind of more in the working world first. And diabetes soared up, uh, as did other things, heart disease, overweight, um, menopausal symptoms, depression, mm. uh, heart problems, all kinds of things. And you could say, well, let's go back. <laughs> let's dial back my diet yeah. to more plant-based diet and see what, what happens. Um, and, and then, of course, of course, now we are the people who actually can show in your body that that causes this, what we call intramyocellular lipid. That's the fat in your muscle cells. You, you can actually watch it regress. Wow. So, Dr. Bernard, what would you point to as other notable changes in the medical profession over the course of, of your career in the way certain ailments are viewed and treated as the diabetes example we just discussed? I mean, are there? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Thanks. There have been so many. And this yeah. is the reason that I wrote Your Body in Balance. I got so excited about this, this whole, the, the old fashioned way of looking at food was, well, you're overweight because you're eating too much, so eat less. Or your cholesterol went up because you were eating cholesterol and and bad fat, and that's all true. But what we have discovered is that hormones are influenced by what you eat. In diabetes, diabetes, the hormone is insulin made in the pancreas. Your thyroid gland makes thyroid hormone. And if that's not behaving well, you can gain weight or it can change your energy. Um, A woman's ovaries make estrogens that increase the risk of all manner of issues from uh, endometriosis to menstrual pain and hot flashes go crazy. And so we now, or at least what I'm, what I'm arguing for, we now have the science of how to control your hormones, how to get them into balance. And if I can get your body in balance from the standpoint of hormones, your power over your health has increased exponentially. And, and just to give you a quick example, um, up until, oh, I don't know, maybe the early 2000s, 
when women would have hot flashes after menopause, doctors would say, no problem. Uh, let's just start you on some hormones. And you just swallow these pills and it's got estrogen in it and it'll knock out your hot flashes. And it's true, it does. It makes hot flashes go away. But then after a couple of years, the doctor says, I, I, are you still taking that medicine I gave you? And the patient says, yeah, yeah, it really knocks out my hot flashes. The doctor says, well, you can't keep taking it. The patient says, wait a minute, why? You, you, you prescribed it for me. Yeah. The doctor says, well, it'll cause cancer. You're going to get breast cancer. And the patient says, wait, 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 wait. I've been taking it all these years. And so the doctor stops it. And then the hot flashes come back. Yeah. And so in every clinic in America and much of the rest of the world, the same conversation has gone forward. Nowadays, what we do is we can regulate the hormones that contribute to these things. And hot flashes can improve. They can sometimes go away. We believe we can also prevent them. Uh, and the same for hormone-related cancers like breast cancer, prostate cancer, ovarian cancer. It's not perfect, but we now know the food changes that control estrogen, that control thyroid hormone, that control insulin, that control all of these things. And it gives you so much power. And for me as a doctor, I got so excited because I kind of thought my vision was, let's put the medical profession out of business if we can by yeah. giving, giving people some tools that you do in your own life. Well, it sounds like not so much, even if you could, putting the medical profession out of business, but just sort of reconfiguring the, the points of view about how things work and what causes what, what it would help ease or, or, or reduce or if not cure things and just looking at it from a different standpoint in terms of an equation. Yeah, and, and to, to take hot flashes as an example, um, much the same sort of process has led us to understand this new power. Um, taking Japan again, uh, I mentioned that as Japan westernized, so many problems became more common. Hot flashes were one. Prior to westernization, women really didn't complain about them very much. But it wasn't just Japan. If you looked at China, if you look, if you look in Mexico, in the Yucatan Peninsula, all say south of Cancun, and um, historically the indigenous population there ate black beans, corn, and lots and lots of vegetables. And hot flashes were not really a big thing. You go there now, and you will see burgers and chicken and fried stuff and so forth. And in all of these areas, the hormonal problems come up. And what we've learned is that by increasing fiber and by reducing fat in your diet, fiber means plant roughage, vegetables and beans, fruit, and then getting away from the animal fats and keeping oils low too, you can get estrogens into a completely different balance. You can also use certain foods in a smart way, uh, soybeans, for example, uh, soy products like tofu or soy milk, they actually reduce cancer risk by about 30%. They'll reduce breast cancer or prostate cancer, which, which surprises people because they've they, they suspected the opposite might be the truth, yeah. but, but no, no, we have had plenty of time to study this and the, the women consuming the most soy have roughly 30% less breast cancer risk compared to other women. Um, but soy also can be used in programs to knock out hot flashes. Um, and it appears, it appears in both cases, it could be because that the soy products, they don't attach to the alpha receptor on a breast cell, which is the one that would drive breast cancer. We believe they attach to a different receptor called beta, which is the, the break on cancer. And that's probably why they have a cancer preventive effect and maybe, and may have something to do with why they have an anti hot flash effect too. Well, so in some ways this makes me want to ask, because I think this is always kind of a key interest of yours. My understanding is that in med school, education about nutrition and the connection between diet and certain diseases used to be poorly covered if they were part of the curriculum at all. How has that changed and what role either as an individual kind of advocate or as part of an organization would you say that you might have played in getting at least some medical schools to fortify their curriculum about nutrition and recognizing the connection between 
diet and certain uh, diseases or ailments. Um, what you said is really right, that, that traditionally nutrition has been neglected in medical education. And that was because the diets that were offered were very weak. There was not much reason for a doctor to study it. Um, but once we started realizing that diet changes done right will reverse heart disease, can help you reverse diabetes, and it, they just have medical power, yeah. um, it became imperative to get them in the curriculum. Um, I know I'm actually not happy with where we are even today in medical schools. I don't think it's taught nearly enough. I think that I think every medical school needs to do much more. There are some that have started introducing culinary medicine classes and they've increased their nutrition education. And I have taught uh, the nutrition classes for uh, students at the George Washington University School of Medicine um, uh, when they when they have been offered at certain times. Yeah. But uh, much more needs to be done at my own medical school and, and frankly at every other one too. So it sounds like there's been progress, but it's slow and it sounds like it's far from across the board. What I can also tell you is that if there were a new medication, it would be in the curriculum in no time. Yeah. Uh, COVID-19, COVID-19, I guarantee you, will be in the classes, on the board exams, people will understand it. Um, because it's a, when, when something is new on our horizon, uh, it tends to grab their attention, particularly if there's a commercial product associated with it, like a vaccine that is going to be promoted and sold, the next headline. Yeah. But if it's something like eating asparagus, it somehow just doesn't get so sexy. Well, not, not only not as sexy, but not, frankly, to not sound too cynical, not, not as profitable. Uh, for a lot of people, probably. That's a lot of the problem, not, not even just in medical school, but for practicing doctors. Doctors in every jurisdiction have to have a certain amount of uh, continuing medical education credits. And so people with something to sell will offer them continuing medical education, and that often means medication. So doctors learn about medications. They don't learn too much about the rest. Now, I'm, it's, not all ter- it's not all gloom and doom. Our organization, the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, does have continuing medical education credits credits approved by the AMA that doctors can use. And in uh, every uh, year or two years when medical licenses are being renewed and doctors need to up their nutrition education uh, or their CME uh, education, they come to our nutritioncme.org site and they start taking our classes. And I'm glad to say that they're learning about nutrition. Well, that's great. So that is a legitimate thing that if they have to get those hours or update their training, they can seek out courses at PCRM and fulfill that that requirement. That's great. Oh, yes. And we have an annual conference called the International Conference on Nutrition in Medicine. And you get about 20 hours of CME just at that one conference. Wow. Um, And it is... It has just exploded over time, uh, the the interest in this. So so doctors want it. Um, And in part, it's because it's exciting for them personally, but their patients are demanding it. Yeah. Patients are Googling, patients are Googling reversing diabetes. Um, and they go to the doctor say, you know, help me with this. Sure. If the doctor says, if the doctor says to them, no, you can never reverse diabetes, that, that doesn't go over very big with the patient right. who, 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 who knows they might've seen one of my presentations or, or, or they've, they've read books about this. This is, this is no longer such a mystery anymore. Well, since we're sort of on the topic of the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, which you founded in 1985, can you give us just a little bit of an overview, and especially if there's things that have shifted or evolved about your mission in recent years that, that might be particularly notable to mention in the context of the conversation we're having? Yeah. Uh, when I was in my first year of practice back in the mid-1980s, I was really troubled by the fact that we don't do anything in medicine in medical practice, we don't do anything to, to stop a heart attack. 
You know, the, the heart attack, the, you wait until the heart attack comes in the emergency room door. And we weren't really doing much of anything to stop breast cancer until you found it on a mammogram. Yeah. And then at that point, you say, hey, great, early detection worked. You have cancer. Now we can we can cut it out. We can use radiation. We can use chemotherapy. Those things are important. But if I can work with patients to understand how they can reduce the risk of that heart attack and how they can reduce the risk of breast cancer, of colorectal cancer, prostate cancer. That is medicine done right. Yeah. And so I started the Physicians Committee to argue for prevention and especially nutrition. And that really means getting the animal products off your plate. Now, now for me, as a kid growing up in North Dakota, where, where raising beef was kind of the, the thing, this was a bit of a, um, a change for me, but um, nonetheless, you can't deny the science of it. And uh, we, so we have done that and we, we do many, many research studies in the same direction yeah. where we uh, bring in people with diabetes and we change their diets and see how they do. And, and we also have a whole side of our mission that relates to how research is done because we have long been believers that you need to study the human, human animal, so to speak, uh, human DNA, human populations, human patients. Yeah. tissues, as opposed to I'm going to study diabetes in a rat. Um, uh, I'm going to try to make a new medication in a mouse. And there are ethical issues there and there are technical issues there. So we have argued for doing the best quality research focused on the right species. And obviously it has to be done carefully and ethically at every stage. Yeah. Let me just let folks know this is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. I'm speaking with Dr. Neil Bernard, founder and president of the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. He's also the author of roughly, I'm going to say umpteen books and will deliver a webinar on Halloween day at noon entitled Your Body in Balance, the New Science of Food, hormones and health and how foods can help us fight COVID-19. For tickets for this webinar and two others this weekend by other speakers, visit cfvegfest.org slash webinars. And this interview with Dr. Bernard was recorded Monday. So PCRM has been around for 35 years. How would you assess the organization's profile and impact? I mean, we talked a moment ago about how for continuing education for physicians, that's a great source of getting the nutrition training that probably, well, not more than probably, was definitely maybe, uh, lacking in their med school training. Beyond that kind of uh, physician audience, how would you say that it, its profile is and its impact is relative to expectations you might have had early on and maybe that's been updated or recalibrated over these 35 years? Well, I think some remarkable things have happened. Um, we were able to demonstrate that diabetes can improve much more than people had thought. And that was uh, one is give credit where credit is due. The National Institutes of Health gave us a grant grant funding to to test vegan diets with for type 2 diabetes. They didn't have to do that, but they did. Yeah. We're grateful. Um, and so that laid the groundwork for viewing diabetes as potentially reversible for many patients. And um, we have then tackled so many other things like rheumatoid arthritis and, and uh, weight loss over the short run and over the long run and just many issues. And I think what we have contributed to is a growing appreciation that getting the animals off your plate is not just a good thing for the animals. It, it is certainly that, but um, it also is a great step forward for your health. Um, with regard to um, training, we were able to end the use of animals in medical schools. When I was a medical student, it, virtually every student was asked to take a dog and experiment on them and 
mm-hmm. kill him at some point. And I said, I wasn't a cocky student, but I said, I am not going to do that. Yeah. And I d- developed an alternative. I did it. I passed the course. I'm on the faculty there now. They got rid of the darn dog lab. And every other medical school in the United States of Canada did the same. They eliminated their animal use. And then we have worked on residencies and, and are making very good progress at eliminating animal use from residencies. Um, so we've, we, we've made great progress. Yeah. That's said, we have still a very long way to go because despite the fact that we have shown that diabetes can improve dramatically and maybe sometimes go away, a third, roughly, of the American population has diabetes or pre-diabetes now. And where this is particularly troubling is that diabetes itself can kill you over a few decades. Uh, the principal cause of death is cardiovascular mm-hmm. heart attack. Yeah. Um, along the way, it leaves you on dialysis and neuropathy and all these other problems. But in a COVID world, the combination of diabetes with COVID can kill you in 14 days. Um, di- diabetes happens to be one of those underlying health conditions that makes COVID really deadly. Mm. If, if you are a thin, healthy person who doesn't have diabetes or hypertension or heart or lung disease and you get COVID, your survival is quite good. Yeah. Overweight with diabetes, with hypertension, the mortality goes up. I mean, just goes way, 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 way up. Yeah. Um, despite the fact, despite that fact, you hear people talking about masks, social distancing, hygiene. That's all very sensible and very good idea. But you also need to get your diet in gear to, to reverse your diabetes, get rid of it, um, so that you're not a sitting duck when COVID comes around. Wow. Well, that might bring us in a way then to, because uh, before we finished our chat here, I wanted to be sure to at least ask you, I don't know how much you're willing to reveal, but I, of course, would love some kind of sneak preview on your webinar, which again, the, the title is Your Body and Balance, the New Science of Food, Hormones, and health and how foods can help us fight COVID-19. Sounds like you kind of already set the scene a little bit for the COVID part of that, but I'm sure that's kind of makes people sit up and take notice if there's something that they can do. Uh, oh, yeah their food that could help them be more protected against any kind of COVID infection. Absolutely. As soon as the pandemic emerged, it became very clear that a person with diabetes who gets their diabetes under control has dramatically reduced risk of dying of this disease. I'll give you some numbers. When, 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 uh, when the pandemic started in China, it was first clear that people just who had diabetes were about three times more likely to die than people who didn't have diabetes. But then they looked at control. If you had diabetes under poor control, mortality was about 11%. If you had diabetes in good control, mortality was 1%. So I can get your diabetes under good control in two weeks' time, if you'll give me that. Yeah. Um, if, you, if you have high blood pressure, same story. I can get your, your blood pressure under control in two weeks' time. And when I say, well, you know, what am I going to do? I'm going to take the animals out of your diet. I'm going to use, use uh, no oil. I'm going to get you exercising, lace up your sneakers. I'm going to bring your family in so that we're all going to decide we're going to get healthy together. Yeah. Um, we're not going to guilt you. We're going to make it work. And if you also need medications over the short run because it's taking time to heal, we can use that. We can use them now um, and then make sure your medications are up to date um, and then gradually wean you off the medications when you no longer need them. But there is no reason for anybody to have their diabetes or blood pressure out of control so that it, it, it makes them a, a target for COVID. So that message has not sufficiently risen to the consciousness of people. Yeah. No, that's really interesting because for a lot of people, and rightly so, and all they can think about and talk about it, so it seems a uh, slight exaggeration, but not by much, is COVID. And yet, I mean, unless you're in certain circles like the ones probably that you travel in, Dr. Bernard, I certainly hadn't heard 
that element of it and how how much that can make a huge difference to those with diabetes. Though now that you say it, of course, it makes perfect sense, but I just hadn't encountered that concern and that way of thinking and, and really that way of protecting yourself. And our doctors who happen to be working in hospitals around the country and are on the front lines of the COVID pandemic, they will all tell me the same thing. You got somebody in the hospital who is morbidly obese, they're really overweight. That is a person who's going to be on the ventilator. That's a person you're not going to get off the ventilator. That is a person who has tremendous mortality risk from COVID-19. Um, if you had a powerful microscope, you look at each fat cell, the fat cells, the adipose tissue cells in their body express an enzyme on the surface of the cell. It's called it's called the ACE2, um, angiotensin converting enzyme 2. This won't be on the test, but that happens to be the welcome mat for the, the, the coronavirus. And so if you can get rid of some of your body fat through a healthier diet, it helps protect you. Yeah. It's so funny as you're saying this, I'm thinking, and frankly, sadly, I was guilty of this earlier on, although I'm trying to fix it now. But in those first few couple, three months or so of lockdown, people were, they were locked down. So whatever their normal exercise routine in many cases was sort of uh, curtailed or once thrown out the window, people were eating more and probably not necessarily the healthiest. So it just, as you're saying, you're saying, gosh, I mean, again, most people have kind of like reversed course and said, okay, we can't just keep living the COVID diet, which means no exercise and, and plenty of overeating. But early on, it's a weird sort of twist that just by what was, I think, pretty common reaction to being in those totally singular circumstances that people were actually making themselves much more of a target. Yeah, uh, I'm sorry to say that that was the case. Um, I'm, I was kind of hoping early on that people would be um, using that time to better themselves, so to speak. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, learn a new language and, you know, da 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 da, read some yeah. books. But also, uh, why not uh, choose healthy foods? Because yeah. let's, let's face it, COVID-19 is going to kill people. Yeah. But diabetes will kill a whole lot more people. And if you can t tackle your diabetes, then you are also making yourself more resistant to COVID. You know, we don't want to burn too much of the actual webinar itself, but anything else you want to tip us off to that we might expect to hear uh, on Saturday in the webinar? Yeah, uh, a couple of things just real quick. Uh, let me just talk about the thyroid gland in sort of 45 seconds. Your thyroid gland gives you energy. It's at the base of your neck. It makes thyroid hormone. And what many people don't realize is the amount of thyroid hormone you make dictates to some degree, your weight, your energy level, how good your digestion is, and you can manipulate your thyroid hormone production based on certain factors in what you eat. I'm gonna be talking about that. Yeah. Um, the old fashioned approach says, all right, you're hypothyroid, take this medicine for the rest of your life, maybe, but let's look at diet. And then for, for all the, I have a message really for kind of the 18, 20, 22 year old women who are struggling with endometriosis or, or other kinds of menstrual pain. Mm. And every, every month they've got a day where they can't go to school or can't go to work. And they're told, this is just your fate. You know, this is what happens to women. I'm going to share research that we have done on how foods affect the hormones that cause cramps, that cause endometriosis, that cause infertility, uh, because you have power over the uh, over those that you might not have expected. So the, I just got so excited about all this stuff. And that's the reason that I wrote Your Body in Balance is I want people to understand how this works. It's not rocket science, but it, but you do have to learn a thing or two. And then I've got some recipes. Uh, Lindsay Nixon did all the recipes for Your Body in Balance. I don't know if you know Lindsay, but she's just a, a wonderful recipe developer. And um, when she sent me the recipes, she said, you know, they're quick, they're easy. I think you'll really like them. They're tasty. And, and they are. But she also said, this way of eating cured my menstrual cramps too. So I thought, all right, that's, that's validation. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so anyway, that's what it's all about.
That's great. Well, I have a couple more quick questions and then we're sort of nearing the end of our time. But speaking of food and ways to address uh, eating better, well, or ostensibly doing so, uh, and given that sort of a core ethos of your work could be characterized as avoid meat, go plant-based, I'd be really interested to hear your views on the Impossible Burger, Beyond Meat, and those sorts of products. I think the Impossible Burger and Beyond Meat are great products for a certain application. And that is it's what they were designed for. Um, Pat Brown, who developed the Impossible Burger, will make it clear. This is not something for vegans to go to the store and buy. The Impossible Burger was designed to seduce meat eaters. Yeah. So you're at Burger King and they've got the Whopper, but they got the Impossible Whopper. Yeah. And you just you eat it and you discover this tastes like meat and it doesn't have any animals. It's, All right, this is kind of cool, you know. Um, and it, but to achieve that, they put a lot of fat into it. You know, and it's it's not particularly healthy fat. Now, don't get me wrong; it is healthier than the meat burger for right. sure. It doesn't have any hormones in it. Doesn't have any cholesterol in it. Great. You know, it's definitely a step in the right direction. But for a person who's already vegan, you don't need that. The Impossible Burger is basically methadone for <laughs> for, for a, a meat addict. Is going to go to the Impossible Burger and go, oh, this is just as good. You know, I don't need the meat anymore. But then after you've been a vegan for a while, you discover, well, maybe I could have the lower fat burgers, the beans, the rice, the, the other things. And once you do that, then the weight starts really coming off. And then yeah. your cholesterol really drops. So the Impossible Burger is, is your, your, your doorway into, yeah. in, toward a healthier way of eating. Your gateway drug, as it were. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, or your, your gateway out. Yeah, right. Yeah. So this is Talking Animals on WNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. I'm speaking with Dr. Neil Bernard. We're just in our last couple of moments here. He's the founder of the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. He will deliver a webinar on Halloween Day, October 31st at noon, entitled Your Body and Balance, the New Science of Food, Hormones, and Health and how foods can help us fight COVID-19. For tickets for his webinar and the other two that are offered this weekend, visit cfvegfest.org slash webinars. And this interview with Dr. Bernard was recorded Monday. So before we run out of time, which I know we're about to, I want to touch on an underreported aspect of the Dr. Bernard saga, which is music. You're like a sort of a hotshot guitarist and have been playing for years, right? With <laughs> I didn't know you were going to ask me about that. Um, no, well, I mean, because most people don't. And I thought, well, I, I'm a music guy, and I, it really is never, rarely part of any sort of interview or profile or whatever you And yet, to me, it's really interesting. Oh, well, thank you. Um, yeah, when I, when, I, I, when I was a little kid um, in Fargo, my parents got the idea that, that all kids should have music as part of an education. So I played piano, and I played cello, and I was, had lessons and all that kind of stuff. And then, but then the Beatles arrived. And to me, that was it. Yeah. And so uh, my parents didn't really encourage me on guitar, but that became my thing. And when I was in medical school, I had bands at night and, and I, I never really stopped. And my current band is called Carbon Works, as yeah. in we, we're made of carbon and these are our works. And I got to tell you, they are just great musicians. They are, are so great. And, and you can see them if you go on YouTube and just look up Carbon Works. We've got, oh, I don't know, quite a lot. Of, of music videos there. And, and some of them are real rockers and some of them are jazz. But the, the most recent one we put out, we put out this really quiet song um, because in, in this, this pandemic time, people were really just so freaked out and kids were not seeing their friends anymore except on Zoom, the, the school was canceled. So we put out this little quiet lullaby 
And um, the singer that I work with is Italian, and she grew up right near France. So I said, let's do this in French. Mm. The most beautiful thing you have ever heard. And then we did it also in English. And you'll, you'll see it if you go on YouTube, look up Carbon Works. In French, it's called Tout ira bien, which means uh, basically everything's going to be all right, is mm. what it means. And um, have, have a look. It's had a lot of views, and people seem to really like it. And yeah. it has no, no explicit lyrics, so it's, it's going to be okay for everybody. Sure. Well, it sounds like a lullaby for the COVID era, really, in a sense. Yeah, we also did it in English, but I got to tell you, I think that you just can't be somebody singing to you at night in French. So it's really yeah, lovely. that's great. Okay, well, I'm glad we got that tidbit in there because that'll be uh, fun to check out. Any and all carbon works, but it sounds like this recent uh, lullaby in particular. So we've been speaking with Dr. Neil Bernard, again, founder of the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. And the webinar, actually, that he among, and two others will be providing over the Halloween week. And his is Your Body and Balance, the New Science of Food, Hormones, and Health, and How Foods Can Help Us Fight COVID-19. And again, tickets for his webinar and the other two that are being offered in the same way uh, can be found by visiting cfvegfest.org slash webinars. So, Dr. Bernard, thank you so much for joining us again on Talking Animals, and we'll look forward to your webinar. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. My thanks again to Dr. Bernard. And in terms of the song or the lullaby we just discussed there, of course, yes, the French version is the way to go. But to check out the lullaby we discussed, the English version has a wonderful video of assorted animals yawning throughout the song. We see all these images. So it's pretty cool in its own right. So either way, it's Carbon Works. And the English version is Everything's All Right. And just search for that on YouTube. And, and up it comes. And then you can probably backtrack to find the French version from there. So, this is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. I'll speak with Jackie Achicola, Executive Director of the Cat Depot in Sarasota in just a moment to learn about the shelter, hear about some of the cats available for adoption, and not coincidentally tomorrow is National Cat Day. Right now, though, we're going to step into the Comedy Corner with Chris Porter and part of a piece called Vegan Date in today's Comedy Corner on Talking Animals on WMF. Went on a date with a girl. She's gorgeous, smart, but she's a vegan, so... That's over before it started. <laughs> what do you say to a vegan on a date other than, hey, stop crying, I'm trying to eat. <laughs> I got nothing against you vegans. God bless you if you're here. You don't eat meat, you don't wear animals. That's fine, that's your prerogative. I'm just saying stop looking at me like I'm an asshole because we were here first. <laughs> There were no vegans 40 years ago. You know why? They all died in January. That's why. <laughs> now when I'm eating my steak, don't boo and hiss at me, because we are not the only species that eats meat. When you see tigers attack a gazelle, you don't see a bunch of hippie tigers off to the side and boo. <laughs> Can't believe I'm wearing this. Boo. No, they're eating the meat. You know why? Because meat's delicious, that's why. I'd eat more vegetables, but they taste like they came out of the ground. That was Chris Porter in today's Comedy Corner with a portion of a piece called Vegan Date, taken from his album Ugly and Angry. Now it's time to speak with Jackie uh, Jacola, Executive Director of the Cat Depot in Sarasota, who will fill us in on this multifaceted shelter and some of the cats there available for adoption. This is 
Jackie uh, Chocola on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Jackie. Good morning, Duncan. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks for joining us on Talking Animals this morning. Thank you. So perhaps a good place to start is to ask you to provide a brief overview of the Cat Depot, when it was founded, uh, what its mission is. As I've noted, it's kind of a multifaceted operation. So let's maybe start there. Yes, Cat Depot has been around actually since about 2003 in our current location since 2009. And we have about a 10,000 square foot uh, community resource uh, that's surrounding everything cat. We have cats available for adoption. We have a feline-only veterinary clinic, which serves the public. We have a, a retail store, which has anything from supplies to care for your cat to anything for a cat-loving uh, friend of ours. So anything from socks to purses to litter to cat food, we've got that. We also have a several thousand foot education center on the north side of 17th Street across the street from the shelter in Sarasota where we um, pre-COVID uh, hosted things such as birthday parties, guest lectures, summer camps, those sorts of things which have now gone all virtual. Yeah. I was going to ask you, uh, as I asked most folks that have uh, shelters or similar operations, how COVID-19 has affected uh, the Cat Depot day-to-day functioning. So it sounds like right off the bat from a reference you just made that at least in terms of the education center and maybe more broadly. So the stuff that you used to do at the education center sounds like you've shifted to virtual. What else has had to change in terms of other other parts of the, the way the Cat Depot normally would run? Well, I'm I'm super proud of the team at Cat Depot, the staff and volunteers, because we have been remarkably nimble, just like cats, um, in, in dealing with the, the pandemic to make sure that we can continue to provide all of our programs and services for the, the cats and, and the people who have cats that are in need. So we originally went all foster-based for a month so that staff could could stay at home, and that meant quickly clearing the shelter. Um, A lot of those cats from that time were actually adopted by their fosters, Mm. and uh, the remaining cats have since been adopted. But we are continuing to do intakes. Uh, We were only foster-based for about a month, so we continue to do intakes from coordinating with animal services to uh, owner surrenders or some appropriate community cats operating by appointment only. So to accommodate all of our services, folks just need to call Cat Depot at 941-366-2404, and we will schedule an appointment, whether it's for adoption, whether it's for an intake, whether it's for a shopping experience or an appointment in our cat care clinic. Uh, We are uh, making sure everyone is socially distanced and appropriately attired to keep everyone safe. We're just uh, managing that flow. Also for visitors or some of our uh, modest education programs, we are starting to schedule appointments for those as well, one, one family at a time. Yeah, so it sounds like to the extent possible and especially to the extent safe to do so, you are easing back a little bit, but other other things are still following a very strict uh, COVID-19 protocol, uh, which makes me wonder for 
adoptions, how many adoptions, like say on a given week, might the Cat Depot have done pre-COVID and how does that compare with what seems to be the number of adoptions these days? Well, we're pretty intent on delivering our programs at the same at the same level, understanding that sometimes during the pandemic needs are increasing. So normally on an annual basis, we'd adopt somewhere between 1,300 and 1,500 cats per year. Mm. And we just we just passed our 1,000th adoption this past week. So we're only a couple dozen cats behind a normal year. Wow. Isn't that interesting that whatever the limitations are and with uh, social distancing and, and having to go virtual. So so are some of these folks that end up adopting the cats just seeing them essentially like on Zoom calls or other sort of virtual means? How did the initial exposure or introduction get made? Well, we try and, and meet you over the phone. We do ask that you go onto our website at catdepot.org. There is the adoptable cats are all pictured there. Mm-hmm. There is also an adoption application that you can fill out ahead of time. And you can also call and speak with our adoption counselors. And it's kind of a getting to know you. What's your lifestyle like? Do you have any pets at home? Um, what is your household a quiet household? Mm. Is one person living there? Do you have a, a, a robust uh family and what are your expectations in your new cat, your new family member? And we start that conversation and tell you, you know, what the cat personalities are that we have available for adoption or maybe some that will be coming up soon. And then you make your appointment and you come meet those couple cats or one particular cat if you you think you've honed in on one. And that, that matchmaking kind of is facilitated by our adoption counselors. And if it feels feels right and like a good thing when you come. If not, you make another appointment a couple weeks later and come on back. Wow. So after that initial call to kind of assess things and sort out like what sort of style cat and household and how those things would match up, then people just sort of mask up and the next step is to meet a cat or two that seems to have emerged from uh, what that cat counselor has sort of determined through the conversation. Absolutely. So let's try to, uh, in the same way, I guess, let's try to meet a, a couple or so uh, cats that are available. So uh, last night I posted a photo on Facebook of two orange tabbies. And um, I think you know who I mean. They have Italian names, which I, uh, I think is more fun if you say oh, them. Mario than Mario and Luigi. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, so it's Mario and Luigi. Now, what is their story, Jackie? Um, I actually um, would actually have to look at them online as well. I personally am not familiar with Mario and Luigi, but when you click on them, which which I've done right now, for example, Mario um, is, is a little boy. He's about one year old. He weighs 10 pounds. Um, and they are a, a pair of brothers. So they are a bonded pair and they would need to be adopted together. It does appear. Um, and they're very playful, um, love their toys, wrestling and pets. So um, uh, that information, if you click on their photos on the website, is all there for you. Yeah. So that's basically one of those things where it's like they're a package deal. And if both for both of their sake, they really need to be in a home together, wherever, whatever happens next. Yes, and I believe we still have a few bonded pairs. And bonded pairs are a little harder to get adopted because you have to find the adopter who is coming in looking for more than one cat at a time. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes, and most, 
you know, most animal lovers do have other pets at home as well. So just kind of managing that situation and understanding that, that you are, um, you know, you're bringing two, two new little lives into your homes, but they do need each other. That's what the bonded part means. Yeah. Well, they are orange tabbies and they're super cute. And uh, one looks like they may or may not have a, a little bit of a special needs uh, thing. Maybe it's just the way the photo is, but they, they're really great looking cats. And, uh, and yeah, many years ago, we were looking for a cat and went into a situation where there was the same idea. The two brothers that they said, these these guys are super tight. They have to be adopted together if you're going to uh, get either one. So that's what we did. So, yeah, even though people, I think, a lot of times go in looking for one, uh, if it's a situation like that, next thing you know, well, you're coming home with two. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That 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 does happen. That sure. Does happen. Well, there's worse things, will, right? Yes, yes. I um, will be featuring a few. I have a um, a Facebook webcast that that airs the last Thursday of every month called Kindness Matters on our Cat Depot Facebook page, and we'll be featuring a few more of our adoptable cats tomorrow. Uh, Sharon will be one of them. Donatella, who is our meow mayor, she speaks on behalf of the cats. Um, mm on our social media so people can just follow us and learn more um, as we post throughout the week about all of the kitties. Well, and that timing uh, is notable, just probably mostly coincidental since it sounds like you do to that Facebook Live every uh, last Thursday of each month. But tomorrow it does also happen to be uh, National Cat Day, which is one of the reasons I thought it'd be fun to talk to you guys uh, today as well. So, uh, yeah. So there's lots, lots doing tomorrow with National Cat Day and with, of course, Cat Depot. And um, so, uh, Jackie, so again, the, the website is catdepot.org. And let me see if I have the phone number correct. Is it 941-366-3404? 2404. Okay, 2404? Yeah. Okay, yeah. great. So that's where you can find out more if you're interested in finding out about a cat or having a little conversation with an adoption counselor, et cetera. So, uh, yeah. All these cats are looking for homes, and there's some really great ones. And, again, you can just check out catdepot.org to uh, to meet some of these cats we discussed and many others that we didn't get a chance to discuss. So, uh, so Jackie, thank you so much for uh, joining us today on Talking Animals. Thank you very much. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'm Duncan Strauss. You're listening to Talking Animals. Coming up at 11 on WNF, it's Rob Lorai with Radioactivity, followed at noon by Midpoint with NOLA. Then at 1 p.m., the music kicks back in with 360 Degrees of Blues, hosted by Harrison Nash, followed by Scott Aylett in the All Souls edition of It's the Music. And again, if you didn't have a chance to donate to our kind of broken up one and two day fun drives, fall fun drives, or even if you did, we did fall a bit short. We'd love to have a bit more help. You could do that by calling 813-238-8001 or going to WNF.org. Meanwhile... On this show, as the prize for Name That Animal Tune, I'll be offering a Talking Animals t-shirt to the first person who calls 813-239-9663 and correctly identifies this animal song. It's Name That Animal Tune on Talking Animals on WMNF.
All right, we will take that guess off the air. We have reached the end of today's edition of Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. Rob Loy is up next. After NPR News headlines, Bev Capshaw will be here next week for me, and I'll see you in a couple weeks.